Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know, and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors. Today, we're talking to Contrarian Ventures founding partner, Rokas Peculitis and GP Thomas Kentis. Contrarian focuses on energy tech and smart mobility at the seed stage and by doubling down on community. Their reputation and brand has far outgrown Fun One's modest 12.5 million euro AUM, allowing them to punch far above their weight class and raise for a many times bigger Fun Two. We have to say, this episode is an amazing inspiration for any emerging manager thinking about new ways to cement their presence in European VC. Want to be on top of who the best up-and-coming emerging VCs are in Europe and maybe even invest with them? Pre-register for our newsletter on theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know. Rakas Thomas, welcome to the show. UVC and thank you for taking the time to talk here today. How is everything with you guys? Everything's perfect, guys. Thanks for having us here. Yeah, thanks a lot, guys. Okay, let's deep dive and let's talk about Contrarian Ventures. So Contrarian Ventures is an energy tech and smart mobility focused seed stage European VC firm with a very strong focus on community. And so I think the interesting part here for our audience, which as you know, is mostly emerging managers, is to start with a story of Contrarian Ventures. Where did it come from? Why did it start? And how did the thesis come to be? Yes, yeah, so I think we know each other with Thomas for better 15 years. So story goes a long way back. So Contrarian Ventures, I think there's a few caveats to it. I think in a way we have a one common denominator of commitment to the net zero, but that evolved through sort of, I would say, a thought of process that an opportunity that we sort of presented itself or we saw at the time when we started. So my background is maybe starting with that is I'm actually from finance. And previously to that, I worked in London and Merrill Lynch in investment bank as a trader. So kind of, I would say, contrarian twist of plot to, to go to VC at first kind of context, uh, personally, and maybe worth for Thomas to do a short intro as well in this sort of path. Yeah, for sure. No, I, 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 Rakas is the founder of the firm, for sure. I did join him maybe a year or so later after starting the firm. Our paths were crossing since we were 15, from school to university to exchange programs in California, sort of, you know, working together in a lot of different projects and things. It kind of was very, very natural for us to do something together. At the same time, I was also in finance. I was doing London and New York roles in M&A investment bank, corporate finance advisor across across a lot of exotic locations, in addition to, you know, FTSE 100 companies in UK or, or large US corporate, but I was also doing deals and was being placed in Israel for like a month, you know, selling big biotech company to doing deals in Jordan, in South Africa, doing a bunch of biotechnology deals in Switzerland. So a very sort of diverse path of things. And then, you know, I always want to do something entrepreneurial. And I kind of saw venture capital as something in the middle. We're not building just one fund here. We're building a big firm, a big platform, which we're going to talk about more. So this was very natural and sort of very smooth for me. And I think us coming from a finance background, normally you would say, yeah, you understand the kind of, I think, underlying theme of fintech happening probably when we start our careers back in 2012. You know, that's where we graduated university, went to the same university together. And that was sort of natural to us as a kind of, I would say sector. And I think 
at least for me, when I started to look in venture and like first interactions that I had through, let's say network was like primarily people that were entrepreneurs, like successful entrepreneurs and in ecosystems like Israel. And for me, kind of what came as a surprise is I, I always kind of thought to myself, if I was ever to do an investment fund, it would never be a generalist because you basically just don't have a chance. You just don't stand a chance to be, I would say, successful or take you years to build a unique thesis around, or as you say, a moat to how you win the deals and how you become sort of the underlying brand. So I think naturally the fintech was something on top of mind, given, you know, we both, me and Thomas did a career in finance and understanding where the market was back in 2000, probably, you know, 14, 15 was natural that that, that place was already getting crowded. And I think that thesis was already a natural one. So what we did, we did contrarian things. So we went for non-natural ones. So and, and then energy was something that was, you know, one of the biggest sectors that has not been disrupted at large. And I think looking forward now, you know, what happened over the last four years, I think the initial assumption when we founded the firm was, you know, really energy was this incumbent old business that, you know, was monopolistic by nature, very geofenced geographically with a lot of politics attached. And then was going through like a massive digitalization, similarly like telco finance sector. And that was the opportunity, really. I think one thing that we'd not necessarily underestimated to this point now looking is decarbonization part of that transition. And that has been primarily the driving force of the last couple of years, which at that time, as I suddenly say, it was contrarian to, I think, both my and Thomas' history of like experience in the sector to go and basically invest in companies. And also it was... You know, when you go to pitch a fund back then, would people be like, yeah, but you have no experience in the sector and in VC, and then you're raising a fund to invest in a sector that no one cares to touch, given the kind of stigmas of clean tech 1.0, and that wasn't necessarily a natural or, or intuitive thing to do for someone. So the origin story was contrarian in nature, I think, and Fast forward now, we can obviously celebrate some successes that we have, but it's just the beginning of the journey and kind of so far enjoying it and having a bit of tailwinds that help us to move faster. I'd love to ask you a follow-up question on that, particularly, you know, as you're saying, being contrarian on so many fronts, even on the name, right? In the early days, how did you think about, you know, when raising from the first LPs? So the question that you just shared with us, you know, different sector, doing VC for the first time, et cetera, et cetera. How did you think about, you know, the founding team, setting up the founding team and then driving those conversations to be able to close the first fund? Yes, I think there are some specific things that unique to us, I think. So we're a bit, I would say, lucky and obviously happy that we had a single large Anchor LP, which is an energy company, which came with that domain of expertise for Fund 1. We're sort of fundraising for Fund 2 now, and we're going to bring like a broad range of LPs coming from more institutional and more diverse in nature. So still going to be some strategic probably, but it's going to be a way, way more diverse group. So that fundraising and Fund 1 was not necessarily as normally you would go through through like approaching hundreds of LPs. It was a bit, I would say, easier and then trickier because it was an LP that was of corporate nature, but and they were doing it for the first time, investing in a fund, right? That was interesting, but obviously a lot of help came from, you know, they just generally that they had the expertise and we could always go and like do diligence certain things before the investments, or they could help to, for the companies to grow post-investments. So that was, I think, unique part of it. To the second part of the question, it was a bit different point of time, right? So I would say there wasn't many people that would focus at C truly. And I think that opportunity existed because 
we just approached building a firm completely differently to the, you would say, the kind of older funds that have been around the block and had the scars of Cleantech 1.0. We really approached with a fresh lens of pair eyes and looked at it completely differently, uh, focusing on the software part and really building what we will probably discuss partially is the kind of unique mode that we went after, which was the community part and inclusiveness and being available and, and kind of building things like a company rather than just like raising a fund. A lot of people talk about raising the fund, but look, this is a business as well. And it has people, HR, general admin, you're like doing a lot of things at the same time. And and I think when Thomas joined was, I think the kind of pivotal point in time for the firm, because, you know, we had like venture partners before and people that helped to set up the firm initially, when it was more like a solo side of GP where I was full-time just myself with quite a bunch of help. But having someone like Thomas that I know for a very long time to join would kind of made a dynamic really to a next level. And I think that's in 2019 where we started to really expand and do things. Yeah. Before deep diving into that, because that is definitely something we want to talk about, just for our, our listeners to have an idea, what's the size of your fund? What's the size of your team? Just give us here an idea of scale so everyone knows. And maybe also add to that, what was the size when you first launched? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. And uh, so the numbers are when we first launched, it was six and a half million euro fund. So very, very tiny. It was Solo tiny GP at the time. Yeah, it was, well, it was a few people in the team with more than not full time okay. role. Yeah, I, 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 I would say yes. I would say yes. More solo GP with some part-time folks around yeah. it, more an advisory role. Then it got increased. We had an agreement with the, with the main LP, Anchor LP, that it got doubled to 12.5 million euros. So that's where we stand now. You know, it was a small fund back in the day, 2017, when Rockus launched it, or 2018, when we did the first lesson. It's, it's extremely small now. Uh, people been raising crazy amounts of money. You can still in- claim the smallest fund in Europe in energy title. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think U.S. would call us nano because you know I think in the U.S. the definition of a micro fund is anything below hundred million dollars. So I think anything around twelve million euros. I don't know. That's probably a nano fund or something. <laughs> These were the numbers. Uh, we yeah. obviously focus on fundraising fund two uh, with the very much more broader LP base and much larger fund, and we can talk yeah. about that. But that was what initially. Happened. I think for listeners, everyone is chasing the kind of big number. But in reality, when you're starting off and doing things, I mean, personally, the title of the most profitable fund, I think, in the world belongs to Chris Saka. I think that was seven and a half million fund that was like 100x or something like that, or even more, I think. So I think it's not about really the size when people tend to like overfocus. It's like, you know, bigger, larger, these side of the denominators people like to use, but is what you do with the money. And I think devoting a lot of hours in the day. It's just building things scrappy, which for yeah. that experience, you learn and you backtest and you don't launch things with just like big marketing campaigns and, you know, PR budgets. I think the real way to do it is to reach your audience. And same way we are, you are building a community. I think we were trying to build our own community that would be serving that entrepreneur and Let's not forget if there's no entrepreneurs, there's no job for us to do. So we do exist because of them. I find it that I take it as a positive, obviously. But now that we've probably outgrow significantly our AUM with the brand, it's time to, you know, level things up and get aligned too. Yeah. I just want to add a few things. This is Rockas used a great word that he was a lot here, scrappy and humble sometimes. So with that kind of budget, as you guys know the how management fees and everything works, it's a very, very tiny budget. So we had to do everything sort of almost everything in-house, a lot of things that people would outsource, we had to do ourselves. You know, that's starting from PR, marketing, to digging into the audit with the auditors and 
you know, recruiting people and so on. You know, so it would be very easy. We had a large fund to give it to the recruiters to do the recruiting, give it to the marketing folks to do the PR for us and so on. You know, so we learned so many things. It's very beautiful and very inspiring to do this. It's tiring and exhausting, as Rakas mentioned. A lot of hours go into that, but you just learn a lot of things very, very quickly from our level at the GP level to everyone from analyst to intern even, you know, we've been super successful to have some fantastic, super smart interns who want to work in BC and want to work in climate tech. And, you know, these guys would come in two days later, we'd jump on a call with a startup with some help from our side. So, which was crazy, you know, but we had to do it because it's a very small team, very tiny budget. So we had to do everything together. So, which was great. We learned a lot of things and now it's time to move up to the to the next level. I think our better halves will say otherwise that they were not as yeah. happy with that. But, but that's, you know, that's the sacrifice. Yeah, that's yeah. the game, right? <laughs> I think that there is a super important lesson in here for all the people fundraising because we have so many emerging managers and people wanting to break into VC and they focus, as you said, on racing before building. Yeah. And I really think that there's an important point there that you guys built the platform, you built the firm before you went and tried to raise a big fund. Yeah. I would yeah. love to hear a lot about how you hustled your way through because <laughs> with a six and a half million fund and the management fees that that can give you, that's not a lot of cash to play around with. What did you do for income streams? What did you do for being able to actually hustle? Also, the crowd listening to this, they love stuff like the VC tech stack. So if you have advice on how to do that without burning through your wallet, then... then I, I think there's no, there's no magic. There's one that kind of typical building a business story of like you burn for your savings that's one bit uh but you truly believe in it and that the kind of the motivation is a bit different to where you're getting a cushion pay and you sort of yeah we'll do it at the pace that is normal i think you just you know you put more effort into it and everything matters to what you do i think you become more selective of what you do and what you don't do we never try to build additional income sources i think that would impair you to being focused so that's someone doing a fund. They need to sort of go and accept that, that it will be a few, like three years that that'll be rough. You're really building a firm. So you're building a business. So there's obviously a long-term thinking that has to be attached to it. I mean, you truly need to set some sort of clear boundaries of a plan that you want to achieve and not just go and raise a fund. And as I said, there's a bunch of people raising a fund. And if you ask them why you're doing it, they would probably not even answer the question because they want to invest in companies. But that's not really because... Sure, everyone's goal is to invest in the best companies, but the world best not necessarily is the easiest one, right? Because you have to get access. And you don't start with the investing part. You start with how you will win the deal and what makes you different and what makes you unique and why would someone want to partner with you for a period that is longer than average marriage in the U.S. And we know that statistic, what people tend to forget, right? Like it's a very long journey and there has to be a mutual agreement and understanding that two parties are going for that journey together. And especially investing at seed stage becomes, you know, a very unique spot for and a very rewarding one in a personal relations with the people that you build because they start their own journeys and you're part of it. And I think personally, at least for me, that was a motivation that is just not the one fund that we're building. We're building a 30, 40 year business, a career that we go both together and build and you get better only by time <laughs> and only by making mistakes and only by winning and that's called an experience. And you really, really need to enjoy it at the first place to be successful in this business. Actually. Yeah. And to add a few things to sort of more practicalities, I think maybe for emerging or aspiring fund managers, how to do this, we would love to, but we wouldn't go and buy and spend tens of thousands on pitch book subscription, deal room subscriptions, I don't know, Bloomberg subscription, you know, if you really need some of that data, 
we try to strike some partnerships. So, you know, do favors for these guys, maybe make some introductions for potential clients, maybe get some data for free, maybe get some trials for free and so on. So, you know, really hustled our way. And that became so natural that we didn't even think about it, I think. You know, you sort of get a quote and it's like, look, what I can do for this guy to get this quote cut in half, what favors I can do. And, and we just did that. We did this great rebranding exercise, you know, which was fantastic for us. It took a long time, six months, but it was very painful, I think, for our designers, programmers <laughs> who did this because, you know, we negotiated really hard on the contracts. We really asked for a great product. But then at the end of the day, they were so happy with this. It became such a great showcase for their brand as well as a firm that they've been sort of putting us on the first pages. So a lot of that, a lot of hustle and really practicalities on every, every step. You know, even talking to auditors, you sort of don't want to outsource everything. So you really need to dig into the data. You do the evaluations yourself with the help of someone else looking over your shoulder and so on. So just doing a lot of stuff yourself and not outsourcing it. But, you know, as I said, you learn a lot. You know, now it's so much easier. Now I'm happily with full content can give it away and just look at three things instead of 15 things and I'll understand if it's good or it's not good. And doing it really simply like saying simple stuff like we're never going to pay for a conference. If we go to a conference, we need to speak. Like otherwise, why would you go? It's not like holiday, right? Like you can go for real holiday. So I think these are small things that matter, I think, and you don't waste time more so than money. And then the other part to it, if like with the conference, for example, which we built also, it was that, you know, we were not necessarily invited to where we wanted or to be speaking in somewhere where we need to pay like 20 grand to be there. And like, seriously, you can build a thing with 20 grand. And we felt that things that we're going to not necessarily with the great quality at the end of the day. So I think you can go about this a bit differently is like, if you don't like it, you can always do it yourself. And I think a lot of people just complain that they don't like it, but they don't do anything about it. So yeah. It's your approach. And if you see value that you can create, and I think being smaller, small team, we went about these initiatives in a creative way that it became an extension for our team. Or in the same way, like someone did us a favor, then we can do favors. And that's an amazing spot to be because it's not necessarily you know, a favor where someone needs to, you know, pay you back. I mean, yeah. though Italians have a saying, you know, I don't do favors, I accumulate debt. <laughs> so I think in the venture <laughs> community, that is also to some extent, you know, this is a funny one of being helpful, you know, VCs getting, you know, joked about. But I think in the community of other investors, that is important to be sort of not just selfish, but collaborative. And we believe yeah. in that from A to Z, I think. And yeah. I think that's how you approach it. And sometimes it pays in one year, sometimes it probably pay in decay, but that's giving something forward. And maybe, Rokas, let's pick up on that point of competition slash collaboration in the VC community. And you also said it before that you need to have something that you bring to founders. And you've also said that your brand kind of punches above your AUM. <laughs> so I would love to hear about your value add to founders. What is it that you guys bring to the table? And also how you think about portfolio construction in that relation? Because having a small fund means in the energy seed space, yeah. <laughs> you quickly run out of dry powder. <laughs> On the founder side, value added side is we probably need to call the founders <laughs> and ask them <laughs> yeah. if we deliver on it. But I think the way we approached it is just, I think every company and journey is differently. So you do approach it with every entrepreneur. I think we sort of build this sort of in a way thought about the slogan that we did and it kind of boils down to being hands-on community focused and founders vetted and these three parts of it are quite important for us each one in respect so you know hands-on we really 
are pretty ambitious and young and we want to help in any way possible. So mostly around network and fundraising. I think that's where it's the strongest and that's how we build the community around it for different initiatives. A founders vetted is the result of being helpful, I guess. Like people want to work with you and there's word of mouth like in any other product. We do have an NPS for the entrepreneur and then the entrepreneur, if the NPS high, there's a virtual network effect that happens from that like in any product. So you can think of it as a product to a certain extent. And then the last bit is community focus, which everything kind of feeds through. And that's whether that, you know, we call it more a platform of different initiatives that we do that again, serves either, you know, go to market, go to clients directly. And given that we're niche, we're by design attaching people that are relevant to the ecosystem. So I think that's the short way to think about it. It's whether engaging by, you know, the content that we provide, the analysis that we do and or initiatives that we launch and events that we create. Yeah. If I could just add, and coming back to being specialized and focused on this particular industry really, really helps. As Rakas mentioned, being a generalist, your help could be one thing. But being here, being surrounded, talking to the corporates that these startups would be interacting on a daily or weekly basis in terms of commercial contracts, talking to utilities, oil and gas companies, talking to cities, thinking about how to change the mobility, how to change the goods and the way the goods and people move around the streets, it really, really helps. So sort of always plugged into this ecosystem 24-7. It's so much easier to connect the dots and connect the people to the right places. So that really helps us. If we're a generalist and we're investing one day into fintech, another day into marketplace, another day into solar assets, I think it would be much, much harder. We have a very different type. Or you need a very large team. Exactly. And as a matter of fact, like it's a common rule, like you need to spend 10,000 hours doing something to get good at skill. And I think not just as a VC, surely that's like a personality and like certain things that you want to start to see as a patterns, but like more so become an expert knowledge in a specific sector that you cover. I think eventually everyone still specializes at something, even a generalist. But I think us, not only ourselves specializing as individuals, but also the firm. So everyone is vested in that commitment to what we're trying to achieve there. And it's not just invest in good companies. It's eventually what these companies create impact. And that impact leads to sort of, I think, the net neutrality and climate that we're trying to go towards. And like any other sportsman, if you wake up and you go to bed with the same idea, thinking about the same topic, there's going to be some interesting things that through time, as you accumulate that knowledge, will start to put in places and build that puzzle, which I would say if I next day need to look at enterprise SaaS and I don't know, in some very niche industry, I don't think I can get to that knowledge of expertise. And that yeah. comes with time and, and, yeah. and experience. Yeah, We've been hinting to this community and platform for the whole episode so far. <laughs> first time I spoke with Thomas, we actually spoke a lot about this, you know, building brand as a first fund to attract deal flow, the operational implications of that, et cetera, et cetera. So I'd love to hear you put some words on to, you know, what is this platform or community? You prefer the word platform. What makes it up and how does it work so our listeners can have a better idea of that? It's just a general narrative how you want to play this, right? There's the cowboys of this world, the people who are run by one person or an individual or their brand. There's uh, the generalist that runs by thriving of being in an ecosystem for 30 years and some of them being very silent and doing shown by their work and, and IPOs that they've done. Mm -hmm. In topics that are as important generally for, I think, general society as climate, we felt that it needs to be vocal. It needs to be well articulated. Because I would say when we started, that problem not necessarily was well articulated. 
And that community eventually led to not just like articulating our thesis or how we do things or why you should partner with us, but generally underlying problem that we're trying to solve by investing in these technologies. I think implied, we do believe that, you know, what will get us out of this mess of climate, like what got us out of the mess of COVID was technology, bottom line, because the vaccine is a technology, right? And obviously there's additional layers of involvement, people being aligned on things. So same way in climate, I think that's the similar narrative. A lot of the things that we now call infrastructure have been technology like solar back 15 years ago. Same way there's going to be a lot of technologies that will be backed by some of them with venture capital, some of them with generally will bootstrap or become a business, but venture capital plays at the core of it. So I think with that thinking in mind, that platform was two-sided thing. So a way to articulate our thesis and just get more people on board and what we believe is a very important topic. And then the other part to it is obviously, sure, we're obviously doing a job here, investing in best companies and to differentiate us. And I think every single initiative that we do is now more and more cautiously crafted to serve the same thing, to just A, build us a stop of mind. And that's our goal over the next five years to be top of mind seed fund for climate tech entrepreneurs. And then the other part to it is probably, you know, be earlier and building relationships that last earlier than anyone else. And that's how you really win the deal, to be honest. Yeah. There is a relationship part, there is understanding part, and there's a timing part. So we focused on a few things in general. Obviously the industry, so climate tech and more specifically at least we've been for now is sustainable energy transition as we call it and smart electrified decarbonized mobility. We focus on seed, so early stuff, kind of as early as it gets for our fund, and then focus on Europe and Israel. These three things, three layers sort of give us the parameters that we look into it. So the great saying, I think maybe Fred Wilson, the fund size defines your fund strategy, right? So with the fund of the size, there's only a few things you can do here, right? So our portfolio constructions really looks at the risk diversification. So having enough CCH portfolio companies. So we have a higher chance of hitting the few big ones. You know, sometimes you need only a big winner. So far in the portfolio, we have three great winners. So we're doing very, very well. And we have a bunch of other companies, 10 plus companies that are still too early to tell or are showing some great, great things and hitting great milestones. So we construct that around the stage seed. We try to get a decent amount of ownership as early as it gets. We want to be ideally the first institutional seed investor here, get a board seed. If there's a board, maybe there's no need to form a board at such an early stage. Maybe we come in even before there's a round form. You know, ideal case scenario, obviously, and we've done with number of companies and we do much more of that is getting to the entrepreneur when he's leaving his job maybe a custody job at a corporate thinking about a starting a startup wants to ask some questions of someone who's done it before maybe an investor you know we had a few cases like that so we could really control the process we could be the first ticket and we could even you know tell him hey look that's the best investment size these are the best funds to do it that's how we think about it. Our real strategy is to look back the winner. So we kind of said, look, I think there's a couple of school of thoughts around the reserve policy or follow-on policy. We think you want to back the best company, so put as much money as you can. Obviously, there's if the valuation is too crazy, we think about it differently. But that's how we've been doing so far, sort of trying to do 50-50 kind of split of really putting half of the capital of the fund into new investments and then half of it into reserves of the best companies. So try to maybe keep the stake as you can or, or even build it if that's possible with primary or secondary transactions. 
We really tried to shy away from like being undisciplined. I think we still, even with a small fund, we were pretty disciplined in terms of where we invested at what stage and what type of valuation. I mean, surely in 2017 is very different to what is 2021, right? So that slightly changes. And I think something like, you know, portfolio construction is a dynamic thing that you assess pretty much on a quarterly basis, as long as you're fitting your investment strategy. And at that, the core, it's still seed. I think the kind of valuations definitely changed. The round size has changed. It shifted a bit between things, what you define. But at the core, the sweet spot for us is that there's a form team, there's a product, at least with the validation, or MP and some clients that so we can get feedback. We don't do on pitch deck. I think we don't do on napkins. We don't do this kind of overhyped type of kind of BS. Yeah. I think we're very honest to ourselves what we can and cannot do. And I think that's how we stick to the fundamental rules of how we go about this. Just to put some context here, I'm right to say that you guys are mostly focused on the software side, right? Yeah, correct. I think not all the climate problems are solved with software yet, <laughs> but I'd say the split is 60 and we'll call this 20% is hardware-enabled software where there's like a software element that eventually becomes enabled because of hardware and eventually becomes like more than 50% of revenues in three years. And then we have this deep tech moonshots type of you know hardware place where there's necessary hardware, there's no software components of yet, and places like hydrogen, carbon capture, and various others that probably require a bit more capital. But then you are taking a way more time to like basically go through these type of opportunities because they're implied complicated, right? There's like physics and chemistry involved. And generally, yeah. like they're bounded by some limitations of chemistry and physics, and you need to assess that. And we don't necessarily come from a purely technical knowledge. We do have an expertise and advisor network that come from an expertise and that we seek externally as well and the best people in this subsector that we're trying to invest but these are more driven by team like you know vettiness of science quotations of that you know specific innovation and talking to really people that they know their stuff in in a particular area but our belief is technology is going to help solve the climate crisis bc is a part of fostering this technology and you cannot solve it just with software Obviously, there's Cleantech 1.0, but a lot of things have changed. So we do, as Rocco said, split it into core backed by software. But, you know, we do and will keep on doing hardware investments where it makes sense. In a lot of hardware is, is hard. Hardware takes a long time. And often there's much better financing structures than VC money, right? But there are a lot of cases as well where these hardware startups, or as we like to call it more, and that's kind of where we put most of our money in terms of having some hardware components, is hardware-enabled software. So simple examples being, you know, smart thermostats, smart batteries, even electric bikes or business modules, electric bikes and stuff like that. These innovations will help move the climate crisis away or help solve it. And some of the entrepreneurs will make a decision either start or not start the business. And as a VC fund, you can be that trigger with your financing and with your help. So just by getting a grant from EAT or some other financing structures with no help, no one helping you what to do or really solving your crisis on a daily basis like we do, that will not be enough. These things are very helpful in some cases, but they they're not come, dynamic enough. But they're not dynamic. They come, you know, as a capital and then come with a bunch of reporting and stuff like that. So Strings attached. we definitely don't shy away from it. We understand we're a fund. We have duties to our LPs to return the capital to them in a timely manner. But we very big believers that you know, there's a lot of fantastic hardware-enabled software investments that can make a lot of money out and it's going to really help solve the climate crisis. I actually have like a sort of additional argument to as part of portfolio construction. So Tesla, right? Like a, a good example, right? Everyone knows the company, et cetera. But like 
implied is hardware. It's not a company, right? I mean, it's, it's a car. Like eventually it's software long-term. It's a hardware-enabled software business model, right? I mean, step back from it is like, it's a portfolio diversification if you put it in deep tech companies, right? Like this is moonshots for a reason why the people call them. But those moonshots, usually if they work, they're like $100 billion plus companies, sometimes $10 billion companies. Let's put the boundaries there. But in a software, if you go, especially in energy or in mobility, a lot of those will be like fast scale businesses and especially in enterprise SaaS, but some of them will not become $10 billion. The implied will have a cap at $10 billion to outgrow that, right? Because if you look at the amount of companies that are $10 billion plus these days from like, I think there was a statistic out there, it's something like 60 companies really. So you have to have that balance to not leave these generationally changing companies. So if you invest in hydrogen company and it will work, this is going to decarbonize implied the whole industry. And that will de facto become a generationally changing company. You know, as we had industrial revolution, you will have a green revolution in, in, in industry. And that's the only way that this can move a needle. So you by design have to go after these big bets. No one in mind that you're balancing your risk reward. Uh, let's put it this way. I think you, you're fine to lose 20% of the fund on some of the bets, even in some instances, even more. I think some funds do like statistic at more like 40%, the companies go bankrupt. But if that works, that's, you know, not just a dragon for your fund, that's, that can do 10x on your fund. So I think it's just a question of reserves, really, and dilution that matters. And I think for a hardware company, that tends to be hard. But I think we're pretty, I think, happy to be in climate specifically with this decarbonization discussion that's been happening over the last 18 months, and especially on the back of COP26. Look, there's going to be a lot of non-dilutive financing and everyone understands because technologies that we invest today will become infrastructure of tomorrow. And to descale that infrastructure to be feasible economically, one needs to support that either through a carbon tax or a subsidy to make, let's say, green hydrogen work. And we think that will help us to balance that dilution element as part of de-risking that technology. So again, a lot of wishful thinking, but hopefully what people talk, they will do. So they yeah, don't yeah. just do the talk, but do the walk. And on the back of that, we think that this is not just like next five years. We think that's the next 30, 40 years are going to be really one of the most exciting industries out there on the back of a few things that are happening there. It is amazing what's happening in the climate tech space. And we're happy to have you here with us <laughs> because you guys are front runners, especially in developing a new model for VC funds to operate right from the beginning of launching. So that's super cool. Guys, now we would like to go to the uh, quickfire round. We will ask you a couple of questions and it's 30 to 60 second answers per one. Are you ready? Cool, ready. Let's do it. Okay, Rakes, you go with the first one. Within the smart mobility and energy tech space, what areas excite you the most that most other people around you don't feel that excited about? I think battery cycling is going to be something that is just like a phenomenal place that people still underestimate what size of opportunity there. Cool. Thomas, what are your three top tips for VCs trying to build community? Maybe I won't be able to give the three exact tips, but you definitely got to be useful. That community has to be useful for all of the participants. So I don't like talking about us and our initiatives like Energy Tech Summit or Climate 50, but if listeners check them out, they're very, very useful actually for every single participant. I love things that I use like, you know, and, and a big plug for Sophie at Climate Tech VC, which is doing a fantastic thing with a newsletter, connect a lot of people or massive 10,000 people work on climate Slack community group where people 
you know, introduce themselves every hour, gets you a lot of contacts, get to deal flow and all that stuff. So these are fantastic things about these communities, which are very, very useful for everyone. And to both of you, Contrarian is in a super interesting stage going from fund one to fund two. What are your tips for anyone else going in that fund one, fund two vacuum? <laughs> Never lose the purpose of sense while you're doing it. I mean, it's going to be not an easy straight road <laughs> with the sneakers on your foot. <laughs> it's going to be a kind of tricky road that you're going to need to navigate. But I think not losing the sense of why you're doing it is an important one. And I think the other bit of it is pick what you truly like as a sector. Don't get in post because at the end of the day, if that doesn't excite you, I think nothing will. And don't forget that it's building a company same way, not just raising a fund. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I would add practicality. If you're raising fund, just try to get an anchor investor as soon as you can. It's yeah. going to make your that, life w- way, way easier. Uh, save a lot of gray hair. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because sometime back we had uh, Christian uh, Anandes on from Tony 150 in the yeah. same space as you guys. They raised 270 million in their first fund. You know very well. <laughs> His advice was the same. You need to get that anchor investor. That changed the game for them. Since you addressed in this podcast LPs, we're we're pretty surprised how VCs have to have a conviction, but LPs don't, uh, which is something that I still cannot wrap my heart around my head. So that's a food for thought for people that are listening on the LP side. I think you have to have more conviction in people (laughs) because it's people's business after all, right? Track records are built in decades. I think it's people who build those track records. Some LPs invest only on conviction, meaning that they invest in the guy they know from wherever, (laughs) private equity fund now doing a VC fund. So there it's all a a conviction. And then there are this that, you know, yes, for sure. It's a bit sad. They need to see that track record showing a very safe bet. Otherwise, they won't do it, right? But I think with a lot of the wealth being created in the ecosystem of venture, I think what's the most beautiful, eventually the best LPs are going to be entrepreneurs themselves. And I think we're starting to see this where people sell companies and they don't need a conviction to believe in you. They truly believe because you're doing it as an entrepreneur first, not as a fund manager with a track record. People tend to forget that at the end of the day, I mean, every business is to a certain extent similar, right? Track record, of course, matters. We don't you know, you know, necessarily say that it doesn't, but I think you just need to make bets on people's career. And I think some very, very successful people did so, both on the entrepreneur side. I'm very interested to see how this evolves with some freshly minted billionaires that are going to eventually become also maybe investors and VCs and LPs in the fund for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Ruckus Thomas, thank you very much for your time. That closes our interview today. Hopefully we'll be in touch and we really enjoyed having you at EOVC. Thanks a lot, David Andreas. Guys, and thanks for doing this. What you're creating is fantastic, so keep on pushing it. I think you're doing a community as well, so it's an important one, I think, especially for emerging managers. Definitely. We appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors.